Welcome to Stories of Iceland. This is the fifth episode and it's called Here, Smith of Heavens. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. In the first season of the television series The Handmaid's Tale, you can hear a few Icelandic songs. Of those, the most famous is called Heir Himnas Midr, or Hear Smith of Heavens. It is sung by Hildur Guðnadóttir, and the music was written by Icelandic composer Þorkell Sjöbjörsson. The lyrics, on the other hand, are from a 13th century poem by Icelandic Gordi and chieftain Kolbe Tumason. The story behind the poem is a fascinating one. It deals with power struggles in the 12th and 13th century of Iceland. It was a country where the Althingi performed the duties of the legislative and judicial branches of the government, but there was no clear executive branch. Most of the power in the land was held by the Gordar, who were chieftains who often inherited their title. But there were other players on the field. In the year 999, Christianity was declared the religion of Icelanders. And in the year 1056, the first bishop of Iceland and Greenland was appointed. He was called Islevur Gisrason, and his seat was in his own estate of Skálholt in southern Iceland which also became the seat of his successors. The people of Northern Iceland were, as always, rather reluctant to be controlled by the South, and in 1106 the Diocese of Hólar was established in Skafjörður. If you understand that Iceland looks like a sheep, you can look at the sheep's back. There is one long fjord in the middle, which is Eyjafjörður, and to the west of it there is a shorter fjord, and that is Skafjörður. So Iceland was split into two dioceses, which, among other things, established their own schools. The bishops slowly gained power. In the late 11th century, the first taxation in Iceland was put in place at the Althingi. It was called Tiunt, and was a church tax commonly called tithe in English. It was a 10% property tax, it was split four ways. The bishop got one part. One part was assigned to help the poor. One part towards building and maintaining churches. And the last part was meant to pay for the salaries of the priests. Since local chieftains had built churches on their own land and employed the priests, they had de facto control over half the tithe money. This made the chieftains richer than ever and in some ways, undermined the authority of the bishops over the priests. A key element of the power of the bishops is that, unlike the Althingi or the Godar, they were subject to foreign influence. The Icelandic bishops were first subjects to the archdiocese of Hamburg-Bremen, 
which is in current-day Germany. In the beginning of the 12th century, a new archdiocese for Norway, Sweden, Denmark and Iceland was established in Lundur, which is now the southern tip of Sweden, but was then ruled by Denmark. That didn't last long, and in 1152, yet another archdiocese was established, this time in Nedros, current-day Trondheim, in Norway. So the situation was that while the bishops were under direct Norwegian rule, the Icelandic churches were largely controlled by local chieftains. The bishops tried to gain independence from the chieftains in the late 12th century, but made little headway. At the same time, the chieftains were vying amongst themselves for more and more power. The history of this period is mostly recorded in Sturlungasaga, which means the saga of the Sturlung family. This saga is not really an Icelandic saga, since it was mostly written about very recent history. Its main focus is the late 12th century and most of the 13th. It was stitched together in the 14th century from many sagas, but the bulk of it is from the Saga of the Icelanders, which was written by a member of the Sturlung family called Sturla Thordarsson. This was a brutal family which fought for control over Iceland, not as a unified force, but often against each other. The interesting part is that this family included poets and writers who left us with treasures of Icelandic culture, not just Sturlunga Saga, but many other gems, such as the Edda of Snorri Sturlungsson. For this episode, the Sturlungs will be relegated to cameo roles, but don't worry, I will get back to them. This time, I want to focus on a pious little man who has been both demonized and canonized in the centuries since his death. One scholar scathingly called him the most unnecessary person in Icelandic history, and one modern Icelandic author portrayed him as a bumbling idiot in a historic novel. But he is remembered as Guðmundur Góði, which means Guðmundur the Good or even Guðmundur the Holy. There is a valley in North Iceland called Hörgardalur. It is in Eyjafjörður near present-day Akureyri, not far from Troublemaker Valley. But, more importantly... At the time, it was near to Gaustir, which was the most important port in Iceland at the time. On a personal note, this is the same valley where my grandmother was born in the year 1921, and Gaustir is the site of the farm where my grandfather was born and where they later lived together. But that was long after Gaustir had lost its influence. Guðmundur, who was later called the Good, was born in Hörgardalur, in the year 1161. He was an illegitimate child. His father was a warrior who had died while saving the life of a Norwegian earl called Erlingur the Slanted. So Guðmundu grew up with his uncle, who was a priest. The uncle was hard on the boy, and it is said that he beat his nephew to book. That is, he used corporal punishment as an incentive to make the boy learn how to read. After surviving a shipwreck at the age of 19, Guðmundur became very pious and, five years later, was ordained as a priest. As a priest, he became known as a very holy man who performed many miracles. His theology was in a style that is called Imitatio Christi, an imitation of the way Jesus himself is said to have lived according to the Gospels. 
So Gwilmid cared little for the good things in life and lived in service to the poor and the needy. For a time, he was a priest in the aforementioned Svarvadalur, Troublemaker Valley. The most famous story of his day there is when he was in a party that tried to cross the Hell Valley Heath, Heljardal's Heidi. It was Sunday, and before they got started, Gwilmid had to say Mass. And even though his fellow travelers urged him to cut it short, he was only marginally quicker than usual. When they were on the heath, a snowstorm broke out, and the travelers had to turn back. Gwilmundur ended up using an age-old survival trick by digging himself in a hole called a snow cave. A snow cave shelters people from the wind, and is much warmer than the outside. So Gwilmundur survived, and the rescue party found him, and used the sled to transport him to a nearby farm. Five members of his party did not survive, and there was evidently some bitterness that the holy man could perform mundane miracles, but not save all his fellow travelers. One girl was though reportedly saved by his holiness. She had wrapped herself in his gown, and the only frostbitten part of her was a toe that had stuck out. Maybe not miraculous in itself, since body parts that aren't sheltered are more likely to be frostbitten. After attending Althingi in 1197, it was clear that Gwilmundur had a reputation in the whole of Iceland for performing miracles. At the same time, he was influential in the canonization process of the late Bishop Thorlokur, who was known for giving sight to blind sheep. The most important event in Guðmundur's early career was that he became a house priest for a chieftain in Skagafjörður called Kolbeinn Tumason. Kolbeinn was one of the most powerful chieftains in Iceland, being a force on the national states after having classed with Thorður Sturluson of the Sturlung family at Althingi. Kolbeinn, who lived at Vidimiri, was married to Gildrýður, who was Guðmundur's cousin. He was a member of the Ausbirninga family. His sphere of influence included the Episcopal See of Hólar. Whether it was that Kolbeinn was impressed by the holiness of Guðmundur, or that he felt that the priest was easy to manipulate, is up for debate. But we do know that Kolbeinn used his influence to get Guðmundur elected as the bishop of Hólar. The night before he got the news of his election, Guðmundur had a dream that he was back in his old church in Troublemaker Valley. The altar fell on him, and he interpreted this as an ill omen about his future. So Guðmundur was not overly eager to assume the office of bishop, but eventually accepted. He was ordained in Norway by the Archbishop Erikur in the year 1203. Soon after Guðmundur had returned to Iceland, it became clear that he would not be a typical bishop. For one thing, he had no wife and no children. This might not seem odd for a Catholic bishop, but most of the Icelandic clergy had, up until recently, abstained from the vow of chastity. They married and they had children, and often their wives were not the mothers of their children. To understand this, you need to understand that Iceland was really at the edge of the Christian world. Icelandic Christianity was also related to Christianity in the Celtic world, and there it was quite usual for priests and monks to marry and have children. But at this time in history, there was an attempt being made by the Pope to expand his reach. 
and to standardize Christianity in his realm. Since Guðmundur had no children, like St. Thorlokur before him, he put the church's interest above any personal ambitions. Also, since he tried to model his life and work after Jesus' example, he was liberal with spending the church's wealth on helping the poor. Soon the poor began to gather in mass at Holar to benefit from his generosity. In this way, he upset the social order and made the chieftains nervous. But what really made the chieftains angry, especially his old benefactor Kolpit, was that Guðmundur wanted to assert the church's complete control over its domain. In practice, that meant that when priests were at odds with the secular world, Guðmundur wanted them exempt from the power of the chieftains and althingi. This came to a head when Kolbetnet prosecuted a certain priest called Ausbjörn for non-payment of a debt. Guðmundur felt that this was a violation of the independence of the church and declared that no one could pass judgment over this priest, who, incidentally, had the unfortunate epithet punkur, which usually means ballsack, but also simply a little bag. Though the matter of Balzac the priest seems trivial, it was a breakdown of the accepted process of the judiciary. It should be noted that the Godar and the things were not the best at presiding over justice, but when a man is declared guilty by the thing and innocent by the bishop, there is a conflict that can't be easily resolved. While Guðmundur had people who were willing to fight for him, his weapon of choice was denial of religious service and excommunication. Since Kolbet was a deeply religious man, as most of his contemporaries were, this was no idle threat. Here we can also see a parallel with events that took place 40 years earlier in England, when Thomas Becket feuded with King Henry II. You could even imagine Colbert repeating the words of the king. What miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? Though no one in Colbert's service took it upon himself to assassinate Gwimdur, he finally amassed a force and laid siege to Holar in 1208. Guðmundur tried to escape and a fight broke out between the followers of Kolbitn and Guðmundur. It is known as the Battle of Vídenes. It should have been an easy victory for the larger force of Kolbitn, but a rock, which was the favorite weapon in battle at this time in Iceland, hit Kolbitn in the forehead. He understood that he was dying and begged for the service of a priest, which Guðmundur granted. So Kolbitn died at peace with the church. Which brings us to the psalm, here, Smith of Heavens. The legend goes that the night before his final battle, Colbert composed this poem. The first stanza goes something like this. Here, Smith of Heavens, what the poet asks, may softly come unto me, thy mercy. So I call on thee, for thou hast created me. I am thy slave, Thou art my lord. Kolbeden has mostly been acquitted by later Icelanders, though his contemporaries wondered if the smith of heavens himself had guided the rock 
which killed him. In the middle of the last century, the poem was included in the official book of psalms of the Icelandic state church. That was a controversial decision, and the psalm wasn't really accepted until the Icelandic composer, Thorkell Sjöbjörsson, wrote music to go with it. It is now considered a classic and widely lauded as the oldest psalm in Scandinavia, though for most of its history it wasn't a psalm at all. But it is beautiful. Guðmundur might have been free from culpit, but he was not free from conflict. He tried to levy fines upon those who had been part of the forces that attacked him. Other members of the Ausbirninger family were not happy with this, and Kolbeit's brother Arnur Tumason banded with other chieftains to try to silence this turbulent priest. They laid siege to Holar and threatened to kidnap Guðmundur. The stalemate ended with the most famous of all the Sturlungs, Snorri Sturluson, inviting the bishop to stay with him in Reykholt in the west of the country, while some of the bishop's followers were executed. For the next few years, Guðmundur rarely stayed for long in one place, and in 1214 he went to Norway to plead his case with the archbishop. Though it took four years, he returned to Iceland with the archbishop's backing. Soon after his return, he was abducted by Arnold Thomason. After being held for a year, he escaped with the help of his followers and spent the next few years running from his opponents. The northernmost inhabited area in Iceland was, and still is, the island Grimsey. It lies on the Arctic Circle, and in 1222 the good bishop Guðbindur had been forced to flee there with his men. The Sturlung family had gotten involved, and Sigvatur Sturluson and his son Sturtla came after Guðmundur. The bishop's men were slaughtered and two of his priests castrated. Devastated, Guðmundur asked God to avenge him since his vows prohibited him from doing it himself. The bishop was again forced to go to Norway where he aired his grievances with the archbishop. His list of enemies now also included Magnus Gisurason, the bishop of Skálholt, who unlike Guðmundur, was a member of an important Icelandic family. This family, the Haukdælingar, included most of the preceding bishops of Skálholt. When Guðmundur had returned to Iceland, he found little peace. He wandered around the country, surrounded by his followers, who were not averse to kill and rob as they went through the country. His own seat of Holar was now controlled by Kolbet the Young, nephew of Kolbet Thomason and the son of Arnor. Their dealings were not pleasant. Guðmundur excommunicated Kolbet, who, in return, took the bishop into custody. After making peace with Kolbet the Young, the alien Guðmundur spent his last two years at Holar. This was the longest continuous period he had stayed there since the start of his feuds with the ruling families of Iceland. His ill health had reached the ears of the Pope in Rome, who sent a letter urging him to resign since he could not fulfill his duties. But when the letter reached Iceland, Guðmundur had already died. It was the year 1237. Today, Guðmundur the Good is mostly known for his penchant for blessing wells and springs. These are today known as Gwendarbrunnar, 
since Gwendur is a nickname for those who are called Guðmundur. If you have spent time in Iceland, there is a good chance you have drunk the water from a Gwendarbrunner. Guðmundur was considered a saint after his death, but his sainthood has never been recognized by the papacy. He seems to have had the love of the common people and has a big role in Icelandic folklore. Guðmundur was considered a threat to the various supernatural forces that stalk Iceland. The most famous story about him involves an island in Skyfjörður called Drangey. This island belonged to the bishops of Hólar, and was treacherous to those who went there to collect the eggs of the seafowl who made it their home. To combat this and the evil that lurked in Drangey, Guðmundur went to bless every single piece of the island. He took this seriously enough that he was suspended from a cliff, throwing holy water on the rock. When he was almost finished, a hand reached out and cut two of the ropes that held him. The third rope, which had been thoroughly blessed, still held. Then a voice was heard from the cliff, saying, Please, Bishop Gwendur, don't bless anything more. The wicked must have some refuge. The bishop decided not to push his luck any more, though this creature might have been less dangerous to him than his mortal adversaries, the chieftains of Iceland during the age of the Sturtlungs. Thank you for listening. Please do as the YouTube kids always say, like and subscribe. You can also visit storiesoficeland.com for more information. I am Oleg Nesti Soliason, and you have been listening to Stories of Iceland. Here, Smith of Heavens.